Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. It would be fantastic to have you alongside us on the show. Um, I'm pleased to say that joining us on the programme today on what is a warm but wet morning here in the capital is Emma Rigby. Um, Emma is the founder and director of Love Your Doorstep, a multi-award winning business and community platform which brings together like-minded people with a vested interest in making their communities a better place. Um, Emma, thank you for joining us today and welcome to the show. Thank you, Scott. It's great to be here. Uh, Likewise, Emma, great having you. Um, Not the nicest day for it, but luckily we're indoors and away from the rain. Um, I think a really good place to start here would be by addressing sort of the elephant in the room, as I like to call it. And that's the fact that we're recording this podcast in late July 2021. And so we're at a point where COVID-19 social restrictions are gone for the time being in England, but we're still feeling the impact of the pandemic, aren't we? And that's been the case now for the best part of the last 16 months, ever since it first took a hold of our daily lives back at the end of March of 2020. Um, so um, looking back to that date all the way back last year, looking back from then to now, to what extent do you think all of this has affected you and affected your business? Wow, what an absolute... 16 months we've had in the UK um, across the world really but um, from my point of view at Love Your Doorstep I was really lucky enough to have been building my platform for nine years we're 10 years old this year and when the pandemic hit in London um, I was able to help mobilise our community within a matter of kind of four days to start supporting people in need um, so uh, it's it, it just been the most incredible year. Um, lots of hardship, um, lots of walking angels out there. But yeah, basically within a matter of four days, we were able to mobilise over 70 charities and over 600 local volunteers. Absolutely incredible. Um, the sort of scale of work that's been done in the community to sort of help the vulnerable, especially, isn't it? And do you think that even though in many ways we've sort of been apart during the pandemic out of necessity, it's actually sort of enhanced human connections between us and almost brought us closer together by enhancing that sense of community spirit? Yeah, it really did. And I think um, Love Your Doorstep was founded after the London riots. So it was founded on community spirit. And one thing that I think shocked so many people was that even prior to the pandemic, there were so many members of our community living in poverty. And what the pandemic really did was highlight the fact that there's a lot going on in our communities that people were not aware of. So by the community pulling together over COVID, it has highlighted um, what's happening and the work is still continuing in our community in Enfield in North London. That's certainly positive to uh, to hear as well. And um, despite all of the uh, the hardship that we faced over the last 16 months by and large, um, the sort of silver lining, I think, in the dark cloud is that it's not just an 
sort of accelerated a lot of digital processes and made us rethink the way that we sort of work and interact with each other. But I think it has also made us learn quite a lot, isn't it, from this sort of experience of self-reflection that we've had. Um, are there any uh, sort of major takeaways that you personally think you have, Emma, from this pandemic uh, that you've really learned about yourself or those people around you? Yeah, I think for me, um, definitely it's been about looking at what my priorities were. I think setting up a business from around the kitchen table um, over the last nine years, I mean, a lot of people will understand what it's like trying to set up a business. And um, the pandemic gave me time to kind of evaluate where my priorities were, what was important to me, where I wanted the business to go. Um, so it, it, it's kind of given me that time to sit back and reflect. Um, it, although we were so busy during that time, um, I think it was all about priorities for me. Uh, last year, I got COVID very badly, and my son was hospitalised um, off the back of having COVID at Great Ormond Street Hospital. Mm. So there's definitely um, some long-term COVID happening for me but also just making sure that my son recovered from that episode was huge. And like I said, the community spirit around us um, was just highlighted with with so many people coming forward to help. Mm. So, um, yeah, I think we are all going into 2021 with different perspectives and just really understanding how important community is. I think that's very, very right. We have realised just how important our community is in all of this. And I think something that we've also sort of taken away from this is that we are more self-aware of our own limitations and our own mortality, therefore, and we're also a lot more willing to sort of talk about our health. And that's not just physical that's also mental health and well-being. We seem far more comfortable talking about those elements and those are all very, very important within community as well. Um, just how important in leadership do you think mental health and well-being is? And that isn't just sort of as a business leader looking after that of your colleagues, but it's also taking that time to sort of have a step back and look after your own well-being as well because when you're at the top, you can sort of get sucked into that sort of crisis slash survival mode and it's easy to therefore just sort of neglect your own well-being just to make sure that you're sort of looking after everybody else in a sense. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Scott. Um, it's something that so many more people are now talking about. And it was, it always has been a bit of a taboo subject. Mm. Um, however, with the pandemic, um, well-being is at the top of my priority and for my staff as well. So um, I've got a team of eight and uh, all female and we were all at home with our children and trying to work um, over the pandemic. And my team had a huge job in forming the community. We've got a platform of over 30,000 people in Enfield. So a large number of people turned to Love Your Doorstep for support and help and guidance during that time. So it was a priority of mine to make sure that my staff were always talking to me, making sure that they were taking care of themselves. But like you said, for myself as well, it was about prioritising my well-being um, and just giving myself that time because when you think back, you, you just can't really explain what it was like during those lockdowns. Some mm. people enjoyed it, 
some people went through real hardship. And I think that isolation from other people is extremely hard, not just for us as adults, but also our children. So it's been a huge amount for us as communities to deal with and something that a lot of people may not have processed properly yet. Yeah, I think that's a very valid point. And what we've had to do over the course of this time is not necessarily sort of see the connections between us severed, but we've had to kind of maintain them over virtual means, haven't we? And when it comes to sort of leading teams from afar and doing things virtually in that way, whilst it's had so many benefits for the work-life balance for quite a lot of people, it's also warranted a sort of change in approach and leadership style from those running businesses, isn't it? Because especially on the mental health and well-being side of things, when you're in person and you're working together in one space, I suppose it's easy to pick up on certain social cues in a way, but sometimes the nuances of those cues don't carry over as well on like a Zoom or a Teams call. So you've got to be sort of on the lookout for more and you've got to really change your approach, haven't you? Just sort of keeping in touch with your team. You really do. And I think, like you said, um, we have developed as a workforce or as organisations We've shown that we can actually have a work-life balance. Mm. Um, with so many more people now working from home, um, it, it's a new era. It's a new era, and um, it's, it's going to be incredible to watch how this plays out over the coming years, really. Um, Love Your Doorstep, coming up nine years ago, it was always an ambition of mine to really have work-life balance as part of my organisation. I'd worked in the city for 10 years, and when I moved to setting up my organisation locally, it was really about a move for me that was more about lifestyle and work-life balance. Um, however, you get caught up in the setting up of your business and the hours that you work are extreme. Um, so I've really taken a look at that again during the pandemic and made sure that my team and I are getting that work-life balance that we need. Yeah, it's vital, isn't it? Because just doing everything remotely isn't necessarily a one-size-fits-all approach. And so that kind of like blended approach moving forward is probably going to be sort of the status quo moving into the post-pandemic world, if we call it that, isn't it, for a lot of companies? It really is. And um, you're right, so much mental. Like you think about the number of people that have to take mental health days because they don't have that work-life balance so Hopefully employers are really going to see the benefit of giving people that blend of working style now. And are there any other sort of elements of the lockdown period, as well as our working practices, that you think could become part and parcel of the way that we do business in this country and the way that we live our lives? Because um, even though restrictions are gone in England, as we know, um, there is still talk of the blended working continuing. There's also talk of some people still sticking by some restrictions voluntarily. So I guess confidence for a lot of people is key and it could take a while for that to return. So we could see public sanitizer stations, we could see mask wearing and we could see people just keeping their distance from their peers for quite a long time to come. I think so as well. And I think, you know, look, in the grand scheme of things, COVID-19 is something that we're going to have to live with. And um, the majority of people followed the rules we stuck to the government guidelines. We helped our communities. I think communities working together will be how our communities pull out of 
the states that we're in right now. Um, but I really do think that moving forward, we're going to have to learn to look at this and just be more careful. And I think it's made people so much more aware, as you've said, of our health and well-being, taking care of ourselves, um, and just how vulnerable we can be. So it's really good to have a strong network around you and be connected into your community for help. And I think what it has made people more aware of as well is sort of their environmental impact, hasn't it? And um, we've heard a lot about sort of how sort of less traffic on the roads and less people traveling for meetings, doing it all virtually is helping the environment. And with sort of climate being big on the agenda this year, with the UN Climate Summit being in the UK this November, I suppose there's a springboard there as well with the public backing a green economic recovery to really use this as kind of like a watershed moment for sort of real positive change on that front too. I agree. I mean, one of the things I noticed, and I'm sure many others did over the lockdown, uh, was the bird singing. And I even mm. noticed the river where I live, the water was clearing. It was just lovely and peaceful. Um, and we do have major issues with climate change, as we all know. However, a lot of thought needs to go into the infrastructure. Um, I know that there's a lot of schemes being rolled out across London. Uh, but of course, then stress for a lot of people. I mean, I don't want to go off um, track here, but if we look at the quiet and neighbourhood schemes and the low traffic neighbourhood schemes that have been implemented, um, I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done in consultations within communities to make sure that we get this right, uh, because we could make huge changes here for the, for, for the next generation if it's done correctly. But a lot of talking needs to happen. And a lot of consolidation with working with communities needs to happen also. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. There does need to be that dialogue, that communication moving forwards. And um, as we sort of embrace the sort of next 12 months, and hopefully we don't see sort of restrictions backtrack during that period of time, um, what are some of your sort of priorities at Love Your Doorstep going to be, Emma, over this um, sort of uncertain period, let's call it? And um, where are you really hoping to be by this time in 2022, all being well? Yeah, so moving forward for us, um, it's very much about community being at the heart of our organisation. Uh, there's a lot of new community projects that we'd like to do for our local community. Uh, we have got a lot of businesses that we're still supporting as part of Love Your Doorstep. We, we support over 700 local businesses. So just making sure that we help rebuild our local economy um, and making sure that people are working together moving forward and that nothing's missed because there's a lot of priorities um, from youth, you know, all the, all the way up to vulnerable older people in our community that we can all work together on and, and help make a really big difference. I think that's so, so right. Every single one of us can work together to make a difference moving forward from here. And hopefully this pandemic period, despite all the tragedy, has taught us a great deal about that community spirit. And that's something that hopefully as we do start to see some normality return that we really don't lose sight of. Um, and I actually think, Emma, just given how enlightening it's been sort of hearing about this mission, um, it would be wonderful actually to perhaps catch up in future and have you back on the show in the next seven or eight months just to see sort of how we're coming along and how communities are rallying together to sort of keep things ticking over and hopefully we'll have left the pandemic behind by then. Fingers crossed and thank you. It would be great to be back, Scott.
It'd be great to catch up again in future as well, Emma. I've thoroughly enjoyed having you on the programme with us today. It's been a real eye-opening experience for myself, and I'm sure the listeners share that sentiment. And uh, lastly as well, uh, do please take care and stay safe with everything still going on because we're not quite out of the woods with COVID yet, but fingers crossed that we're entering into better days soon. Thank you, and thank you for having me on the show today. It's a real pleasure, Emma. And I would just like to echo that message to all of the listeners that are tuning into the Leaders Council podcast today as well. Uh, Do please continue to look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it does make such a key difference in saving lives during this time. Uh, We're almost there, but let's just be cautious about the way that we're going about things. Um, It was a pleasure, as I say, for um, Emma Rigby to come onto the programme from Love Your Doorstep. Um, A fantastic interview, really compelling, and I do hope that you all thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, And also coming up next on the show, we'll be joined by um, our chairman here at the Leaders' Council and the former Education Secretary, Lord Blunkett, for we enjoy bringing forward a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership onto this programme. Lord Blunkett is going to be coming onto the show, interviewed by our very own Matthew O'Neill, to talk about his take on the COVID-19 pandemic, his hopes for the weeks and the months ahead as hopefully we enter a period of economic recovery, as well as leaving a message of thanks for the wonderful NHS who have done all they can during this most trying period of time. That will be coming up on the programme next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, 
both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm -hmm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on 
issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of... Um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? 
I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I I think people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business 
continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. These kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, but very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision one of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world except for the very poor has been the distribution of food a lot of it on computerized uh, technologically advanced systems if that were to come down we'd be in real trouble so i think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well so have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, 
the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? 
Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate 
rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.